This morning's text is taken from 1 Samuel chapter 31. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. And the Philistines struck struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword, and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through, and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley, and those beyond the Jordan, saw that the men of Israel had fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled, and the Philistines came and lived in them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head, and stripped his armor, and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Beth Shan. When the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard that the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Beth Shan. And they came to Jabesh and burned them there, and he took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. All right, so today we reach the conclusion of our series in the book of 1 Samuel. And uh, wow, we come to the end of the book, and it's also in many ways a very somber ending. Uh, this chapter begins where chapter 9 le- left off, and that was that you had the forces of the Philistines gathered at at one area, and you had Saul gathered there in Jezreel, the valley of Jezreel, and they were facing off. And then we had a few parentheses going on there with David and different things happening, but now we're back to see what happens at this great standoff. And here it is. It is verse 1. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. It pretty much sums it up. This is a very quick commentary of of what has happened. And what we do see, again, I want to remind us, is very blatant. And that is that God keeps his word. That God keeps his word. What did God already say? We, We saw that Samuel, the prophet, already told Saul that the kingdom was taken from him, given to David, and that he would die and his family. And that's exactly what happens here. And so I want to make clear as we begin this little, little portion here, these 13 verses, I want to make clear of the dichotomy between Israel and the Philistines. So, so let's just think of, the, of this. Who are the Israelites? Who are the Israelites? We know that they are God's people, right? The Israel, the nation of Israel, that's God's people. Psalm 135.4, for the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel, as his own possession. This is one of a myriad of verses in the Old Testament that tell us that God chose the nation of Israel. So that's his people. Who are the Philistines? Well, 
Last chapter, chapter 30, verse 26, David said this, when David came to Ziglag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. So the Philistines are the enemies of God. The Israelites are the people of God. And we need that. We need to make that very clear when we read verse 1, which tells us the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and were slain on Mount Gilboa. The enemies of God, God used to destroy his own people. Now this, is, this is, as I said, sobering. Let's continue. Because the first two reports the first casualty of this war, of this battle, rather. It says, and the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan. Jonathan is the first reported casualty. Abinadab, Malkishua, his brothers, the sons of Saul. It's, it's fitting that Jonathan would be first and, and prominently announced here because Jonathan was that man who was a mirror of David, basically, as far as a man who trusted God and had the heart of God and, and went out many times and led Israel to victory and, and trusted in Yahweh. And yet John was not just a faithful friend to David. Jonathan was a faithful servant of his father. He knew his father was wrong. He knew his, his father was disobeying God, and yet he faithfully served to the death with his father here. So it is sad, as we come to the close of this book, to see Jonathan, that great valiant warrior, not just for, for Israel, but a, a warrior for, for, for God. He trusted God, like his father Saul should have done. As a matter of fact, we've said many times, Jonathan should have been the next king. He had all the qualities and attributes, and he was in line for the throne. And yes, it makes sense that Jonathan would have been a fantastic king of Israel, other than the fact that it wasn't God's plan. And it shows again Jonathan's heart. Knowing this, he, he had to know that he would have been next in line. And yet he humbled himself to the plan of God and supported David, who was God's man. He knew all this. David, or Jonathan understood all of this. And he repeatedly encouraged David through all the times he ran from Saul. It was Jonathan who kept reminding David, this is God's plan. You will be king. Fear not. Strengthen yourself in God. So that's Jonathan as he now lays dead on the battlefield. But notice the death of Saul recorded in verses 3 through 5. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust it through me, uh, th me, me with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not. His armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. So we see an armor bearer here that has the same heart as David had. Remember, David twice had Saul delivered right into his hands. And what did David say both times? Much to the chagrin of his men who said, David, take his head off. God's given him to us. But David said, I won't touch the Lord's anointed. Vengeance is God's, not mine. And this armor bearer seemed to have that same mentality. He, he feared greatly. He feared God more than Saul. He wouldn't take Saul's life because Saul was God's anointed still. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul had died, so it goes on to say, therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when the armor bearer saw that Saul had died, he also fell upon his sword. Now look, look, look at this. 
In verses 6 through 7, we see a very, very powerful statement, hurtful, sorrowful, somber. Look at this. Thus Saul died and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men and all, all on the same day together. Now, all his men there doesn't mean the entire army. That's his bodyguard. Remember the, the Bible talked about Saul's men, his armor bearer, his, I'm sorry, his bodyguard that was around him. So obviously this was everybody connected to Saul there, his armor bearer, his bodyguard, Saul himself. They all died together. But this is not the saddest part. This is God's completion of his will. This is what God already planned. We already know that if we are careful students of the book of 1 Samuel. No, the sorrowful part is what we're going to see next. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled and the Philistines came and lived in them. That's, that's what's sorrowful. Because what we see here is this great defeat, humanly speaking, of the house of Israel. God had given them all that land. That was their land, their territory. But because of sin and disobedience and rebellion, we see the judgment of God coming. Now we see the people that God had miraculously over and over delivered and given victory after victory, they are fleeing before the enemy, and the enemy is living in their houses. Look at verses 8 through 10. I want to finish the whole narrative, then we'll come back and make an application. But let's look at verses 8 through 10. The next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to all the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. This verse speaks of total shame and dishonor. That's what the Philistines are doing here, right? Mocking, kind of as they did at Ebenezer when they stole the Ark of the Covenant. Boasted about that by putting it in the house of Dagon. That didn't end well. But this time, God has turned them over to judgment. And they're bragging again. They're sending the news far and wide to all of their temples. They've got pieces of the, the armor of the, the, the house of Saul in these temples now. What are they doing when they set that up? They're saying, look at us. We win. Yahweh fails. Yahweh is disgraced. Yahweh is dishonored. We win. Look at the bloody corpse of Saul on that wall and all of his, his armor bearers and his people. We win. I mean, this is far worse than Israel's defeat. Because far worse than Israel's defeat is the dishonor of Yahweh. I mean, the reason we should be angry and sorrowful over our sin and the sin of this world is because it dishonors God. We should hate sin 
Not because we don't agree with the people doing a particular sin. Every sinner has their preference. Isn't that funny? <laughs> lost sinners in this world will judge other lost sinners in this world because they don't prefer their particular sin, and therefore they must be better than that person because my sin is much more in vogue than yours. Well, I just don't like your sin. Isn't it funny? We, we sometimes hate sin because we don't like what somebody's doing personally. Folks, that's not a reason to hate sin. I don't do that, so I'm going to judge them. No, the reason we should hate all sin, including the sin in our own heart, is because it dishonors a holy God. And so, this is the end. Now, we know, of course, it's not the end of Israel's history. We see the other side of God keeping his word and Christ fulfilling all of God's promises at the cross and resurrection. And yet, for us, this narrative, it seems bleak. The end is Israel laying in blood all over Mount Gilboa, the, the, the army. Saul hanging in a, with his mutilated body on, on a wall. The armor of the soldiers and the leader of Israel dispersed throughout the temples, the pagan temples of the Philistines. And it looks like total victory against Yahweh. And yet even in the midst of this, we see one glimmer, one glimmer of faithfulness. And I just want to We'll close with verses 11 and 13. We're not, we're not finished yet, but I mean, we're going we're gonna to st stop reading the text right now, that part. But notice this. It says, but, and, and throughout God's word, you've got to look out. I love the buts of the Bible. It sounds humorous sometimes, but bear with me. I mean, what do we have all through the Bible? We have man's brokenness, man's sin, the judgment of God. And then we have a, but God right? We deserve death. We deserve judgment. But, and that's kind of what you got right here, right? We get this bleak, dark moment, and yet verse 11 begins with but. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan. And they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. There's a lot here, but this is beautiful. In the midst of this bleakness and this unfaithfulness, in the midst of all the unfaithfulness of Israel, we see a, a bit of faithfulness. We see a bit of honor, integrity. We see gratitude, magnificent gratitude that gives way to magnificent valor. And this, this is a picture, by the way, of the Christian response to the magnificent grace that God has shown us in Christ. We should live magnificently and valiantly in this world as a result of the grace that's been shown to us. We should show magnificent grace to others even if it means risking our lives. And that's what these men of Jabesh Gilead did. They saw the dishonor. They, they, they couldn't stand for the dishonor to continue. And so they risked their lives by night and journeyed afar, a far peace, as we would say in Kentucky, right? And they journeyed all night long and they got to that, that wall 
where the bodies of Saul and his sons were mutilated and hung in disgrace, and they took them down. And then it says they came to a place called Jabesh and burned them there. Now, this is a little, just a text, textual note here. This burning, um, this is not common for the Hebrews. This is not how Hebrews buried their people. Uh, they didn't cremate or, or burn like this. So what is this saying? Is this, is this pro-cremation? Not, not per se. And yet, I believe textually what's going on here is they were in a hurry. The bodies were badly mutilated. And for the Hebrews, it was the bones that were sacred. The bones. They, they buried the bones. Like they buried the bones of, of, of Abraham or, or, or uh, Joseph. They carried his body out and buried his bones, right? So I believe that the burning part was just a quicker way to get the flesh. They didn't incinerate the body. They didn't incinerate it down to ashes. I think they just burned off the mutilated flesh to the bones so they could quickly move them and bury them on, under the tree of Tamarisk. You say, what is, is cremation right or wrong, or should we bury bodies? That's not this sermon, so just hang on. We're not going to talk about that. Let's just keep going. I want to make an application. We really have to get going. You don't want me to waste time on that. You want me to get to the application. And here's, here it is. Remember, God judged his people, Israel, by allowing his enemy to defeat them. Again, a, 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 just, a, just, an, a, just a megaphone declaring God's sovereignty. Again, in 1 Samuel. We've seen it over and over and over. God's sovereign providence, doing as he will with all things in the world, evil and good. God uses all things for his purposes. That's what sovereignty means. And here he judges his own people by allowing his enemy to destroy them. Again, verse 1. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines, the enemies of God, and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And look at this. The second thing we notice that is just heartbreaking, verse 7. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side, the men who weren't fighting, the men who were across Jordan, the, the other cities of, of Israel were hearing about this. And they were beyond the Jordan, and they saw that the men of Israel had fled away, and that Saul and his sons were dead. They abandoned their cities and fled, and the Philistines came and lived in them. So this is the two verses upon which I want to build application for us. And what it shows us, there's some similarities here. I know a lot of people look at the world around us and they say, boy, man, if this stuff continues, God's judgment's going to fall. If all this godlessness continues, God's going to judge America. God's judgment's going to fall. I say, based on this text and all of Scripture, judgment has already come. Judgment, we're in the judgment. (laughs) God's judgment is here, folks. That's what... That's what has happened in this text, and that's what's happened here. Think about that. The institutions that God instituted for his church and his people, government, God instituted the government, by the way, to be his servant, to carry out his his judgment on evildoers. The government is ordained to serve God, the family. 
That's God's. Even education, training up our children, right? Catechism, training to teach. That's for God and his people. The church, that's God's. And I will submit to you that it seems the people of God have abandoned their cities and the Philistines are living in them. Therefore, judgment has already come. That is the judgment of God. (laughs) Kevin DeYoung says this, The ubiquitous pride parade may not be a march toward cultural suicide as much as it is a sign that we are already dead. We've, We've abandoned the institutions and the enemy is already living in them. That only happens when God removes his grace from his people. And when they've rebelled repeatedly as Israel did, and he no longer subdues the enemy for them. If God doesn't subdue our enemies, we're not going to do it. The only reason a Christian ever has any kind of faithful witness that your family is strong and, and together, that, that, that a church is solidly preaching the word of God, that's God's grace. That's the spirit. Our sanctification as human beings growing in grace and becoming more like Christ, that's God's grace. That's the work of the Spirit in us. But what happens? Sin is a reproach to that. Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, the word reminds us. Why? Because when Ichabod is written on the door, that means the Spirit of of God has departed. That is judgment. (laughs) Judgment is being absent from the presence and power of God. I mean, think about our government, man. The government, again, what was instituted by God to carry out justice against those who break his laws has become corrupt, godless, and self-serving. Just all around, because humans are, are that way. What about educational? The, edu- the, you know, the, edu- the educational institution. Do you realize the Ivy League that we boast in so much, right? The Ivy League, Yale, Harvard, Princeton, Dartmouth, Rutgers, Brown, Columbia, University of Pennsylvania, You've heard of these, right? Of course. Do you realize that they were all founded to teach and reinforce a Christian worldview? Listen, listen to the, the Puritans. Just a, just a few years after the pilgrims landed, the Puritans came along and said, we want to educate solidly ministers to stand for, for years to come so that we don't fall prey to vain ideas and, and, and just the, the psychology of, of man. Listen to this, rules and precepts. This is, this is on, you can still see this as you walk in Harvard today. They, they have the rules and precepts that were adopted in 1646. And, and, and they, they had some things called essentials for everybody at Harvard. And here it is, one of the, one of the essentials. Everyone shall consider the main end of his life and studies to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. Seeing the Lord giveth wisdom, everyone shall seriously by prayer in secret seek wisdom of him. Everyone shall so exercise himself in reading the scriptures twice a day 
that they may be ready to give an account of their proficiency therein, both in theoretical observations of languages and logic and in practical and spiritual truths. That was not Southern Baptist Theological Seminary statement of faith. That was Harvard. Harvard. It's estimated that in that first century of, of Harvard's existence that over half of all graduates became ministers. Because that was the purpose of those schools, was to train in godliness. And yet, today, we must say, the Philistines are living in the house. Judy Chazen is a California school administrator, and listen to what she said. She said, I think that society looks to schools because we have access to children to, to be able to address a lot of social issues. Not that we're replacing family, but things that used to be the exclusive domain of family or society, we're now asking schools to look at those a little more intentionally. Right. I mean, we, we understand. I'm just, I'm not trying. My heart is simply information right now for us to be aware, to remind us of an institution of education that was basically Christian and, and understood that wisdom comes from the fear of God. All wisdom and knowledge come from the fear of God. The calendars that many schools, and again, I'm saying this again, yes, timely, we're in June, Pride Month, this is something that we can talk about, right? They're talking about it a lot, we can talk about it. The calendars at many schools insist that LGBTQ students be not merely equally treated and fairly treated, but celebrated for their bravery. The year-long celebrations begin in October with Coming Out Day, International Pronouns Day, and LGBTQ History Month. November brings Transgender Awareness Week, capped off by Transgender Day of Remembrance. March is Transgender Visibility Month. April observes a day of silence and the day of action to spread awareness of harassment toward LGBTQ students. May offers Harvey Milk Day, dedicated to mourning the prominent gay uh, rights activist. And then, of course, June is Pride Month. I'm just saying, it would seem the agenda is not... The Philistines are in the house. That's all I'm saying. Lindsay Amar, listen to this, one more thing. Lin Lindsay Amar, a preschool teacher in California, she sings a song to her preschool students that says, preschool students, singing this song, it's okay to be gay, we're different in many ways. It doesn't matter if you're a girl, a boy, or somewhere in between, we're all part of one big family. And this, again, is what's happening. Now, let me say this. What about the marriage and family? That's just one institution, right? What about marriage? And family. Guess who instituted that? God. God instituted marriage. It's his. What did he tell us? He said that marriage is between a male and a female. That's it. God instituted it. We can't, though, and I know it's easy to do this, and I, this is why I'm trying to not just rant and rave, but we can't point the finger of where did marriage go? Why isn't marriage honored anymore? And how could marriage be between Two men and two women. We cannot point the finger at Obergefell in 2015. Folks, 
that's what Christians were doing back then. And, and I think the homosexual community called us out rightly. Why? Because the church had given up on marriage years before 2015. We, we have. We already abandoned. We already abandoned that institution. When we had a divorce rate in the church that was the same as that in the world, living together and having sex outside of marriage has been widely accepted among Christians for years. That's dishonoring marriage more than anything else. It's, we're, we're all... Co- We're all guilty. I mean, listen, here's how marriage got to where it is today, where people don't understand it or have any clue of what God originally intended it to be. Listen to this, this article. This, this is just a headline, a couple of headlines that I read this weekend. Hateful anti-LGBTQ graduation speech at Ohio High School sparks outrage. And when they interviewed one of the attendants, she said, when he made the comment that marriage should be only between a man and a woman, my jaw dropped to the floor. Another part of that headline said, or the same story, different headline, a high school graduation speech telling students to choose a spouse based on biblical principles is sparking outrage. But again, shouldn't be surprised. We've abandoned and God has judged, and the enemies are living in our house. The church, same way, right? We've abandoned the church and allowed it to be taken over by psychological self-help, self-esteem, pragmatic, sin-affirming ideologues. Now for the real application. Because up to this point, many of you are like, yeah, baby, preach on Bunch of Philistines taking over our stuff. Right? 1 Peter 4, 17 reminds us, judgment begins in the household of God. Judgment begins in the household of God. Everything I just said is true. It's happening. And I believe it is a part of God's judgment. He is allowing, he's turning over to the reprobate mind, as Romans chapter 1 says. No question. This is, we're already under God's judgment, folks. So what do we do? Let's just keep yelling about how bad it is. That, again, has been the response to the church mostly, right? Let's just keep casting the, the, the focus on that grotesque stuff that we don't like. No, folks. We need to repent. No, no, no. The homosexuals need to repent. <laughs> the abortionists need to repent. Yeah, true, but do not lose the focus. We need to repent. We need to repent. We need to repent, first of all, of our lack of love for the lost. (laughs) We need to repent for the lack of love that we do not have. We, We do not have a love for the lost. When's the last time you prayed for the LGBTQ, for the LGBTQ community? But when is it? When is the last time you prayed for people whose hearts are deceiving them and who the enemy of this world has blinded their eyes? When have you prayed earnestly for them instead of mocking and making fun of and chiding and using them as the butt of a joke? When is the last time you prayed? God, break their hearts. God, open their eyes. 
those those things that we demonize, that's what happens, right? When, when somebody's not like us, we, we demonize them right away. And we watch the pride parades. And it is, again, there's this balance. This is what's so hard about this. There's this balance. We are to hate the fact that sin dishonors a holy God. And we're to hate that sin just as God hates it. And yes, even the sinners who are in the midst of cursing God, we can hate them. You say, oh, no, you can't hate the sinner. No, God hates the sinner. Huh? This is a quick little thing, folks, I'm going to say real quick here. But... You know, people that love the sinner hate the sin. What does God throw into the lake of fire at the day of judgment? He didn't throw their sin in there. He throws them in there. So we can be displeased and angry at sinners and sin and still love them. Why? Because God says, love your enemy. <laughs> so they are an enemy of God and we hate that part. But we also are commanded to love and pray for. Why? Because we are them. Those people that you're watching, just remember this. Those people that you see marching down the streets and flamboyantly thumbing it in the face of God, their sin, they're your daughters, your sons, your cousins. Your, they're, they're people just like your kids. They're human beings, blinded and in need of a Savior. So we cannot expect God to move in revival and begin to, to move powerfully with the gospel among them when God's people are so hard-hearted and unrepentant and judgmental and hypocritically judgmental when we have sin that we've not confessed. Love sinners first and foremost. Pray for them. What did, what did Jesus do in Luke 19, 41 as he entered Jerusalem? It says, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept. He wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. You're blind. So Christ, in his humanity, wept over the lost, broken condition of people. That God would give us the hearts, that balance, right? Godly indignation against that which dishonors God, but love beyond all measure for sinners. We need to repent of that. We need also to repent of our failure. On the other end, our, we, we need to repent of our failure to lovingly confront the lost with the gospel. Because, folks, if I truly do love them, I will not just pray for people who are in sin. By the way, it's not just what we are seeing pushed in our face right now during Pride Month. It's that guy who's cheating at work. That man who cheats on his taxes. That man who steals. That man who lusts after greed. That man who you, you know has been so overcome with greed that he's working so much overtime he hadn't seen his family in months. That's, that's also sin. So what I'm saying is, folks, we need to confront all sin when we see it. If we love people. See, love also confronts. So instead of complaining about their sin and being drawn into arguments about whether or not their lifestyle is right or wrong, we need to consistently point them to repentance and forgiveness found in the gospel. That's the call of the church. Basically, we are called to be the salt and light of the world, not its debate champ. The church is called to be the salt and light of the world, not a debate champion. We're not here to win arguments. 
and to prove that somebody's wrong. We're here to point people to the only thing that can transform them, the gospel. Now, the, 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 the term salt and light is used, right? That's what, the, that's what Christ tells us. Matthew 5, 13 and 14. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. So there it is. We're salt and light. What does salt do? It's a preservative. Salt confronts corruption. It literally does. It does that in meat. You put the salt, you pack it in, it confronts the corruption, right? It's standing against it. And that's what we do as salt. And I don't know about you, but have you ever grabbed a handful of salt and pop it in your mouth? Not very good. Charles Spurgeon, I like what he said about that. He says, you are the salt of the world, not the sugar candy. You're something the world will spit out, not swallow. That's first and foremost about what it means to be salt. It's not always tasty. It, it, it actually hurts. When you rub salt into a wound, what does it do? It burns. And yet it heals. What does light do when you first see it? It hurts the eyes. If someone's in darkness and you shine a light in their eyes, it, it, it hurts initially. They recoil. But this is what we're called to do. Philippians 2, 14 to 15. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent. So that speaks again to our attitude as we do confront sinners. We do it without grumbling. We don't dispute with them. Again, we're not arrogant and haughty. We're blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Yes, God tells us it's twisted, it's crooked, it's perverse. It's against his morals. And yet, how do we approach blameless and innocently and look what it says, among whom you shine as lights in the world. We're to shine as a light. We're to be salt. If we really love people, we will not just pacify their sin. We will not just affirm them in the very sin that will one day send them to hell. I know that our feeling is if I don't affirm somebody in their sin, I'm going to scar them or hurt them. If I, if I, don't, tell, if I don't call them by their pronoun, I'm going to somehow scar them. But in love, standing on the truth and telling them the truth will scar them far less than an eternity separated from Christ. So as, so as salt confronts corruption and as light, we reveal sin. That's what we do. This is what I'm asking us to do is to lovingly begin to address things as we prayed for them, this world that has a totally different thought than we do because they're lost. <laughs> so we got to pray for them, just like we were. We got to pray for them, but then we have to confront them with the gospel in love. And therefore, as salt, we confront the corruption. As light, we reveal their sin and illuminate the path that leads to Christ. That's why we must confront. That's why we must at least be telling the gospel. They're without, if they can't hear of the remedy, how will they ever trust in it? So we as Christians have been called to be salt and light to the world, to go make disciples. There's really no option. If I'm a believer in Christ, I'm, I'm either standing for him and preaching his truth and love to people, 
or I'm not, and I am in sin, and I need to repent. I need to repent for not praying for sinners. I need to repent for not loving them enough to actually tell them truth. And then finally, we need to repent of our haughty and, right, and self-righteous attitude toward the lost. As I've already mentioned, again, this is the big one. I think this is one that I have got to repent of for years. Gosh, I remember 30 years ago preaching a message where, where I, I began to just berate homosexuals. And the more laughs I got, the more jokes I told, and the more arrogant I got, and that is sin. It didn't help anybody. It didn't do anything. And that's just one example. We're, her- we're, we're haughty and arrogant about our doctrine. We're haughty and arrogant about things that we know somebody else doesn't know. Sin is just rampant in us, if we're honest, folks. I, again, I, I know we need to... It, it, it's the balance of the Christian life. We're always standing against the sins of the world. Yes, we're preaching God's word, but we, got, we have to constantly be looking within our hearts because it's, this, it's a sin factory. It's an idol factory. It's constantly building stuff. So again, our first and foremost job is to confess our sins and then pray for God to give us the grace to confront the sins of the world graciously through the gospel that saved us. If we have that attitude, attitude, I think it's a good balance. If I'm daily preaching the gospel to myself and confessing the sins that are being produced within my own heart every day, I am that much more sensitive to the fact that the person I'm talking to needs the same gospel. And it'll change the way I talk to them. Luke 18, 10 through 14. You see what happens is we've forgotten where we came from. We have forgotten where we came from. It tells the story of two men who prayed. Luke 18, beginning verse 10. It says, two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. Oh, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners and unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. So, as much as we don't like that guy, represents a lot of us. But the tax collector, standing afar off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. He beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And there's not a whole lot we need to really be preaching about. How do you, what is humility and how do we humble ourselves? Here's how you humble yourself. You fall at the cross every day. You run to the cross and admit, I need your forgiveness. My heart is sinful. Father, give me the grace that Christ purchased for me. That's what we do. We rest in that every day. And then we will say this. Paul said, I am what I am by the grace of God. I am what I am by the grace of God. I have been forgiven much, therefore... I can forgive much, and I have been shown so much grace by a holy God. Now I can show grace. Just want to celebrate with 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. It kind of brings all this together as we, as we close here. Paul says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the, the kingdom of God? The reason I want to read this verse is it puts a good balance here, right? On the one hand, we understand that God hates wickedness. And we're to say that, we're to stand for that, stand up and proclaim that, and, and, and yet we see the grace at the end of the verse. So look at this. 
Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, many people live on that side of the verse who claim to be forgiven of those things and claim to be God's people. And they live on that side and they continue just to throw that in people's face. No homosexuals going to heaven. No revile. No thief. And it's, it's true. But what a haughty attitude when you forget the last part of the verse which says, and such were some of you. We can never forget that the people that God's word condemns blatantly and declares you you and your sin will never enter into my kingdom those same people that we want to cry that out to was us but by the grace of God it is us Paul said such were some of you but you were washed You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. A true knowledge and understanding of the gospel keeps the church humbly relying on the cross and faithfully proclaiming the gospel to the lost and seeing this miracle take place. And those people that we despise because they do dishonor God, and we hate that, but our goal is to see this last part of the verse happen in their lives. We want to see them washed cleaned, justified, sanctified by the Spirit of our God. But first and foremost, folks, may we repent. May we repent of our unfaithfulness to God. Judgment begins with God's people. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that even though this message is hard, Salty, bright, blinding, painful. We thank you, Father, that it leads us to the washing and the sanctifying and the cleansing and the forgiveness and the grace and the mercy of Christ. So, Father, may you forgive us as your people. May you focus us on the cross. And may you empower us to go into this world and to genuinely be your light and your salt, proclaiming the gospel and watching you work by your grace in the hearts of people. For your glory, we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.